six of us in a room. This so big bank of windows. I think it was two bank, three ba three windows of two panes each, that looked right out on the Winter Palace. I mean, it was a billion dollar view. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny how those memories never leave yeah. you. <laughs> Just they're always going to be there, buried in your in your olfactory senses. I still ha I can I can recreate. The, it's like Proust, I guess. I can recreate that smell of Shostakovich's. Welcome to the Slavic Connection. Today we have Matt and Tom interviewing Dr. Tom Garza. Tom Garza is a Russian professor. He has published numerous textbooks on the Russian language, and we'll get into a lot about sort of his origins, traveling in Russia, learning the language, and also his interest in vampires and how he's bridged that into an academic career. So I hope you enjoy. Today we have uh, an episode of the Tom, Tom, Tom and Matt Tom, show. Tom, Tom and Matt show. Tom, Tom and Matt show. With Dr. Uh, Tom Garza. Uh, Dr. Yeah. Garza, welcome to the program. My pleasure. I mean, the first thing that we were just kind of talking about a little bit off there that's fascinating to be is, you know, what was it like your first time in the Soviet Union? And well, I guess the first question we should get in before that is, how did you get interested in the kind of the Russian world and the Soviet Union? And then we'll then we'll talk about what it was like the first time you went there. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. And and it's a it's such a great question to start off with because it's a kind of lead and I use uh, whenever I'm teaching undergraduates, especially freshmen, first per, first year undergraduates. Um, it, it, I really tell them to pay attention in a funny way to serendipity. When things happen, let them happen. They probably are happening for some kind of reason. Um, I. I after being in Texas all my life uh, at 17, left to a small liberal arts college, Haverford and Bryn Mawr, the um, all-male college, all-female colleges up in uh, mainline Pennsylvania near Philadelphia, uh, and thought I was, you know, at least had one, thought it was going to be a poli-sci major, thought I had one of my requirements out of the way because I placed out of Spanish and said, well, at least no language requirement to do. And they said, well, we do two languages oh. at Haverford Bryn Mawr, and so what's your second? I had no clue. I hadn't given it any thought. Um, little recipe box of four by six index cards that showed what courses were being filled in languages. And Spanish was filled, which I wasn't going to take French, German, all of them. Yeah. And literally it was down to, well, we've got some space for you either in uh, our new offering in Chinese or, or Russian. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I really <laughs> say Russian sounds good to me. Yeah, yeah. And that's how it started. And it's also important because it's I, I had no intention of taking it beyond, uh, I think the requirement I needed then for the second language was only a year. And I thought, well, I'll take a year of Russian and be done with that. Um, and it proved to me the importance of really good instruction and an instructor. Yeah. It mm -hmm. was the instructor, Dan Davidson, who just... Uh, he, he's still my colleague and, and, and dear friend. And um, his incredible way of making this totally, un for me, unknown and mysterious, unknown language and mysterious place seems so real yeah. and so alive that made me want to go there the first time. Yeah. And then so how many years later then did you finally make it? Three years three later, years right? Later. My junior yeah. year. Do yeah. the typical, I and follow so, the plan, right? right. You're supposed so to get over there sometime your junior this year. This is 1979. So. And just to understand what, how the, the journey to get there is a story in itself because you had to go through Paris and then you get yeah. on a train. And indeed, 
it was for us because this was the program I went on. I had to do a summer. Pro- I had to get find the cheapest way there. Yeah. I didn't. My family didn't have money. I didn't have money to go on the regular semester abroad. Year, God forbid, year abroad. So I got on a summer program that more or less paid my way. But to pay my way, it had to really be like economy, economy economy coach, economy <laughs> class. If they could have done it back then, they would have had a standing in the plane. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we flew, I was in Corpus Christi at the time, so I'm from South Texas. I was in Corpus, flew from Corpus, some intermediary spot to New York, New York to Luxembourg. I overnighted in Luxembourg, had uh, met up with some of the others who were on the economy economy. Uh, we then trained into, took a train into Paris, then from Paris, uh, two days of orientation, testing, and then took a flight to Helsinki. And then from Helsinki, you got on the, the as we always called it, the midnight train mm-hmm. to, to Leningrad. Then, yeah, to yeah, Leningrad. Yeah. And, and that was it, the overnight train, um, and you, slowing down in Wiburg, the, the right. border town, and mm-hmm. having customs come on the train. It is one of the most, back then, I still remember it, with um, fear, terror, <laughs> the, the, these big beefy boys getting on uh, the, the train with their uniforms, uh, small pocket knives and all cutting open packages and mm-hmm. poking. I had carried in some uh, whole bean coffee to, to, mm-hmm. to drink. I've yeah. been told that there was very little or very bad. What was there was bad coffee. And so I had taken in some yeah. coffee and then punching through it to make sure <laughs> that it was all coffee all yeah. the way through. Yeah. It was wow. that, wow. it was that, uh, that real background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then eventually you wind up at Shestoy Abshizitsya. Shestoy Abshizitsya. And with this, I mean, how, how to, and what, what was your experience living in this, this dormitory? Uh, first, being the first dorm outside the U.S. I'd ever lived in. My, this was my first time abroad to be, yeah. to be in the Soviet Union, full stop. Um, in this incredibly decrepit, dilapidated, I'm remembering, I know the part we lived in because it faced onto the Neva River was... Uh, very late 18th century. The building itself, the, the, the kind of V-shaped building was uh, early 19th century, but the, the, the swing that we were on was actually the very first part of the storm. So it was really, really old, <laughs> decrepit, bad fixtures, everything. Uh, and yet, from our room that held six of us, five Americans and one Soviet, um, this incredible view right onto the Winter Palace. Wow. So and this was during summer programs, so during the White Nights, Wow. This incredible mm-hmm. scene, you know, at around one in the morning or so when the sun would hit its yeah. kind of, I guess, lowest point before going back up. It never got dark. Right. Um, the entire facade of the Winter Palace would go this bright gold. It was just, it was stunning. And so this combination of you're in this, inc- this building that's infested with mosquitoes and, and cockroaches <laughs> uh-huh. and uh, barely has uh, de- had decent running water to take showers and so yeah. forth. And yet you've got this incredible view of the Winter yeah. Palace. It was it was it was very memorable. So did did you have any? I've I've just heard a lot of stories of people of you know your generation <laughs> and older of telling what it was like. I mean, did right. you have any of the story horror stories like where there's no toilet paper? Oh gosh, or where? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, there was no toilet paper. It wasn't yeah. a you know when, when there would be no toilet paper. It was basically yeah. very. It was rare that you would actually see the object appear in a market somewhere. <laughs> And then it wow. would be bought up very, yeah. very quickly. And those yeah. of us, the, the foreigners, didn't stand a chance. Right. Um, uh, so no, one got very used to, very quickly, the comfort that is uh, 
piece of yesterday's yeah. Pravda. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and you learn what roughing it <laughs> yeah. really means. Oh, I, I didn't right. fully understand that expression yeah. until until experiencing that. Of course, for us, I mean, that, that that's all very good for all the stories to tell the undergrads and so forth. But truly, I mean, this, these were also the days that coming in as the, uh, e- even those of us on scholarship were still privileged foreigners, privileged Americans. There were specialty stores called Bidioski, the, yes. the little uh, foreign currency store. So yeah, it, we could buy Kleenex. We mm-hmm. could buy toilet paper. We could buy those things for, for hard currency. Yeah. Um, but and, and how was the food? Did you eat at a Stolovaya on the university's campus? And how, how did you pay for that? Yeah, I mean, very much. That actually was all included. And so for right. those of us on stipend, actually, it was really important. I did eat in Stolovaya. And actually, um, it's not exaggeration or, or any kind of embellishment. I've always really loved Russian Cafeteria food, stalovic kapustas, we call stalovic kapusta. I love it too. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, I always worry about my vegetarian students now who go over because there's nothing vegetarian about it. It's cooked in, you know, yeah. yesterday's beef bones and yes. chicken stock yeah. and stuff. Yes. But yes. Uh, it, and that's why it tastes fantastic. Yeah. So no, I love that stuff. Um, yeah. I probably, uh, on average, two meals a day in stalovic, and then we yeah. eat out somewhere else, like for lunch or dinner. But um, yeah, I mean, after was, coming back, how did you satisfy your soup craving? Because that's what I would always. I, well, the good news here is I'm I'm from a Mexican family, and uh, so I kind yeah. of caldo and and sopas were part of my right. upbringing to begin with. So I I kind of just made the shift from, you know, harcho to yeah yeah to some version yeah, yeah. of menudo or something yeah, like it. Yeah, so yeah. And were you treated as sort of this like exotic type figure, not only being American, but being a Texan coming to Russia when I don't think students from other countries, especially American uh, students, were that common? Absolutely. Um, on, on all counts that you were right. saying. So one, being an American, we were still rather a rarefied creature in, in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. Being then a Texan, Texan to this day, almost anywhere, that includes in Great Britain, even in Anglophone countries, um, being from Texas always, especially in that period, was this, I'm sorry, we were there during the days of Dallas, for yeah, real. Yeah, and yeah. even in the Soviet Union, I still have asked and don't get a good answer why or how Russians at that time knew the series Dallas. It wasn't being broadcast back then. It do got they later. not know who shot JR yet? Was they, that still? They do. Now they, okay, do, they do. But at that time, they didn't. In 79, <laughs> they didn't. I'm, I'm trying to remember if we did. I think we did. I think, in fact, he may have been shot that same year. <laughs> Might have been that summer. <laughs> that may have been that year. But uh, so that, all of it, and there's this wonderful sense of me when you tell them you're American. Uh, so that puts you into this category of rarefied foreigner. But then Texan, there's a quick sense do you know John so-and-so from, he's from, from Houston. He said, um, no, I, I don't. I said, I'm from Corpus Christi one. And, uh, I don't know everybody in Corpus. So I, yeah, uh, there's a real sense suddenly that we're this tiny little village of Texas that with a lot of horses and, and all. And I'm always was asked even to present day, do I own boots? Which I do. I do own boots. Do I own boots? Do I ride a horse and things like that? Still, still, even in, in you know, 2019. Wow. And yeah. when was the last time you were back? I go at least uh, at least once a year, usually twice a year. So the last time I was there was this past December. Wow. My wife and I like to go in the in the pit of winter. I was gonna um, say. It's the best time. There's very, very few foreigners there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can get tickets to anything. You can get seats in any good restaurant. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's, it's kind of nice. It's a, it, we do that one. There is some work involved. I set up the summer program during the winter while I'm there. But it's mainly that one. That trip is mainly for the two of us to see some good theater and visit friends. Because the summer, when we when we take our students in the summer, we're pretty busy. To we don't, we don't have time to do much else but the the summer program. 
And I always kind of chuckle when we ask people, how'd you get into yeah. Russia? It's never like lightning struck and I knew it was my calling. It was yeah. usually like a shrug and yeah. I really enjoyed it. When did you realize that you were going to turn this into teaching? Because I mean, your textbooks, your yeah. teaching in Russian is very well renowned within Texas and abroad. So I was curious, what was the point they realized that was going to be something you followed? Okay, so in this case, lightning struck. <laughs> lightning did strike. So I, I already, by my junior year as I went, my first time to the Soviet Union, I had not yet told my parents that basically, given the number of courses I'd taken in Russian Lang Lit area studies, I was now a Russian major. I wasn't majoring. My dad really, we were the first, my sister and I, the first to go, not just one to finish high school, then to go to college and then to get advanced degrees. So for my parents, it was really important, especially my father. Um, he kind of had it all lined up. You're going to go get a law degree. You're going to study poli-sci. You're going to get a law degree and you're gonna make enough money to set your mother and me up to have a nice place in Boca Raton for retirement or something like that. Um, so I didn't tell them that I would pretty much given up the poli-sci and was really focusing on Russian Lang and Lit. Um, going to the Soviet Union, I actually remember thinking to myself, probably part of my Catholic upbringing, that I was gonna learn a lesson, teach myself a lesson, and I would have an epiphany there that would make me realize this was a big mistake. I should never have done this and go back and quickly take a lot of poli-sci classes in my senior year. Um, but the opposite happened, and that was it. So I did have this lightning strike. So I'm, I'm going through my eight-week program. Seven weeks of the program go by. They're terrific, having a great time in Leningrad. No, no regrets. Everything's going really fine, but no lightning strike. Still just feeling good about knowing some Russian, my Russian was definitely getting better. The last week we go down to Moscow, so we're now in July 79. Uh, if you go into any of the cultural studies books, it was a kind of an interesting golden, small golden period there because it was, um, it's as we jokingly say in Vysotsky studies, anyone who knows the works of Vladimir Vysotsky, it was the year Vysotsky died for the first time. <laughs> uh, he, he, on tour down in Central Asia and suffers a heart attack and clinically, it was proved, uh, confirmed clinically dead and came back to life to live another year before he ultimately died July the following year, oh, 19, wow. 1980. And that summer, right before he went to Central Asia, and I didn't knew none of this. I barely knew the name Wasotsky from one of my culture classes. I think uh, one of my instructors, in fact, really was a fan and he'd mentioned him a few times in class. But we were given tickets um, in the, the whole group with our in-tourist guide handlers. Um, you know, here, evening entertainment tonight, tickets to the circus, I hate circuses, tickets to some, some museum opening, didn't sound interesting, and, they, and it went down the list, and I was, my, my friend and I were kind of, none of this sounds really that interesting, it's like, well, all I've got left are a couple of tickets to the theater, but not to worry, because you'll understand it, it's your Hamlet that's being played tonight, so just imagine your Hamlet, watch the pretty scenes, and you'll enjoy it. Uh -huh. He said, sure, sure, and took the two tickets. We wound up going to the theater on the Taganka, the Taganka Theater, which was still there, and at the time had no clue of what a, what a place we were going to, nor what we were about to see. We had incredibly good seats. I think back now it's hard to get seats that good in the Taganka. Literally, we were front, front row, um, just slightly to the right of center. I mean, and in the Taganka, I'm about as far away right now as I am from you, yeah. from the stage. It's a really small people's theater. And it's Hamlet, the lights are completely dark. There's no, if you know the Taganka Theater, there's no front curtain in, in, the, in the theater itself. There is a massive curtain that divides the stage and moves back and forth. It's on 
so that it can swing around and divide the acting space up, but it's not actually a front curtain. So there's nothing covering this very sparsely decorated stage. And this actor walks out dressed all in black with his guitar and singing a lyric, literally a lyrical version of uh, Pasternak's poem, Hamlet. And I, 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 the lightning bolt hit. Wow. I just, I <laughs> saw him, diminutive guy. Wysotsky's not, a, wasn't a very big guy. He's rather, was rather short, a bit stocky, but not very big. Um, but that voice, this just incredible voice singing this song. And I, I, as I sat there and I'm watching the four hours of the play, it's a longish play, Hamlet, <laughs> um, and understanding maybe 30, no, 20% yeah. of it, I want to say 30, 20% of it, thinking to myself, I really needed, I needed to do a lot more because I want to be able to understand this play. Yeah. And not as a person who knows the play in English, but someone who gets it in Russian. And that was my lightning bolt. Yeah. If you can sit through four hours of anything, yeah. you should put your life towards that's it. That's what I, I decided. I kind of decided the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a good model to follow. So 40 years later, here I am. There. <laughs> And you're interested in like youth and yeah. youth movement. Yeah. I mean, what were your kind of first relationships with Soviet people that you were meeting and of you, kind of your age and your generation? So the youth, like? the youth um, subject, I think, came up mostly when I began my dissertation research okay. there. Um, I, I did my dissertation work at Harvard in uh, started in Slavic and then left actually the Slavic program because it was so it was too, for me too narrowly defined. I wanted to do linguistics and literally was told by my, my to-be advisor um, uh, when I suggested I wanted to do something on teaching Russian language. He sort of poo-pooed the idea saying, that's for, that's for lightweights. You know, people will think you're just a teacher. You know, no one writes serious things about language teaching. What you need to write about, he says to me, looking me right in the eye, um, you need to write about a, a, a Russian verb. And I said, a verb? Said, yeah. He says, there's this category of verbs. He said, you already wrote one of your seminar papers on these seminal factors, these one-time action verbs, mm -hmm. and things like the verb to sneeze, uh -huh. take a gunshot, you know, that kind of one-time action thing. I said, yeah, I remember that paper and I really can't imagine writing a whole dissertation <laughs> on it. He says, no, no, one verb. And he was serious. He wanted me to look at a particular which, verb. Which in, verb you this was not which even one? in Russian. It was oh. in Bulgarian. <laughs> it was in Bulgarian. And it, well, it is the verb to sneeze in yeah. Bulgarian. To look at it at how this um, category of one-timedness is violated in spoken Bulgarian. And it was at that point that I thought, again, a little, a mini lightning bolt that said to me, ah, no, I don't think so. Yeah. And I wound up at the College of Education in, oh. in, at, at Harvard, I should say, at Harvard. And um, that was, uh, that helped me hugely because it really broadened, uh, for me personally, it's not for everyone, but it broadened my Slavic range to include things like not just teaching, but real pedagogy, how actually to get, get information across to people in an understandable way. Yeah. So during, during my, my uh, Fulbright year in Moscow, that would have been 85. It was yeah, Gorbachev's first year. Um, that was when, as I was teaching, and I, because of Gorbachev, thank you, you know, again, serendipity, it was 85. Chernobyl had just happened. So the number actually of Fulbrighters was 
cut wow. because a lot, a number of, not a lot of them, there were very few of us to, to begin with, but a number of them had been posted first to Ukraine. They couldn't go. Some people who were in Western Russia couldn't go to their spots. And so our numbers were quite small that year. Um, and I was posted to, to do work. I was allowed actually to do videotaping inside of Russian specialized schools that taught English from grade two. And my, my dissertation was about how was it that Russian Soviets could speak such quite good English, mm -hmm. French, German, never having set foot in the country or really had much contact with native speakers. So that was my, my topic. And that's wow, when I realized I was doing so much interviewing and work with especially about the 15 to 17 year olds, 18 year olds, that I started getting more and more interested in them as subject than actually my own research. Mm -hmm. I finished my research and wrote the disc, but then I began a longer project that's now gone on, whatever that's been now, since 1985, 86, on looking at Russian youth attitudes, especially toward things like political movements, apathy, yeah. Uh, the yeah. draft, sex, yeah. um, personal, their personal lives and aspirations, those kind of things that have shifted since the collapse. And that's wow. resulted in a number of publications for me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. We had, we had uh, Joshua Tucker on from NYU last week. Yeah. He wrote a book about how people who grew up in communism never really quite shook off the ideological footprint, however. Like, had their views towards democracy right. were skewed for how much time they lived under right. communism. I don't know if you've kept in touch with any of the kids you actually worked with back then, Dude. but do you, have you felt that sort of impact? Has it gone the other way for, in your experience? No, or? It's been, I was gonna say it's yes and yes. Yes, yeah. I've kept in contact with them, and yes, that's precisely, I think, for my generation and the younger generations I was looking at, that's precisely the mentality. Indeed, um, when I've been asked so many times, you know, can, can you explain, how, how do you explain Putin's consistent popularity and success as president in Russia when he's uh, when he keeps getting reelected and keeps these big uh, popularity ratings and yet is so strangely unpopular in terms of himself and some of his policies and so forth. And it has a lot to do with precisely the point you made is the the answer I get, certainly from my generation, but especially now from the groups that would have in those days been in their teens, who are now in their late 40s and early 50s. Even I can't believe that, but it's true. Um, they're now getting close to 50. Are, um, are, are, it could be much worse. And we know that. We know how bad it could get. Right. We remember the period of stagnation. We remember, if not Brezhnev, we certainly remember, from you know, our parents telling us about Brezhnev, we certainly remember, even under Gorbachev and Yeltsin, how difficult it was to get this economy started. So why would we wreck this? It's at least moving forward. Your generation now, the, so if I go to millennials and Gen Z, already I'm getting, I can't wait, this will be my first real interviewing summer with Gen Z, heavily. Um, their, their opinions are shifting quickly, much more to the opposition side in Russia. I have a real sense that about the time, actually, that I don't think Putin would be a viable candidate any longer. I think they're really going to change the direction. I, I've, got, I've got to believe that anyway. I, yeah. I'm yeah. of the same opinion on that, in that matter. I'll state you. Yeah. I mean, remember, it's, it's, it's actually one of the most, to me, salient points. The generation right now, so the, the teenagers I would talk to now, a person in, in, you know, in their, say, late teens, 17, 18, does not know Russia without Putin. Yeah. Right. That, I mean, we, mm -hmm. we can't even wrap our head around mm -hmm. that in the States. We've never had a president that's been around more than eight years. 
And so, which means yeah. that they're also immune to the very stuff you're talking about with Precisely. the Brezhnev and even the 1990s, and Precisely. especially the, the 1990s yeah. today is this era yeah. on yeah. state television and so on that's talked about how horrible it was. And then this musician, Monetichka, had a song right. making fun of that I, idea. And so, but it just it just shows that young people are very immune to, yeah. to the, exactly Precisely. the stuff you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's almost like Americans being born after 9 11. It's yes. just such a preposterous idea to us. Yeah. Like you don't it, remember that it, happening? It, 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 I can't imagine right. what it what it's like, but I but I get it. I, I it's slowly. It's taken me a long time to get over the. You don't remember the fall of the Soviet Union? No. What you weren't alive for that? You were <laughs> yeah. where were you when Russia fell apart? Yeah. Um, uh, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall. All of these things that I think of as as shocking and monumental as nine eleven is for your generation. These things mm-hmm. were. Uh, not, I shouldn't even say just for mine, because even I remember before that, I guess one of my first cogent memories is Kennedy being assassinated. And even thinking then, the reason it sticks in my head, I was too young to have any real, real memory other than it was the first time I saw my mother cry. And wow. so that's the memory for me is what it was. Some, something terrible must have happened to make my mom cry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that must have been particularly hard being in Texas. Then, in I Texas, yeah. it was all—it was local news for us. It was wow. the local news being broadcasted, and, and indeed, you you hit it in one because it was right around the noon hour. My mother mm-hmm. had stopped housework, was watching her soap operas at the time, and they interrupted the soap opera to wow. to was Walter Cronkite announcing uh, that he'd been shot, and then thirty minutes later that he had died. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I didn't think we'd get to Kennedy. So, today, sorry about but no, that. I'm glad. A lyric digression there, but yeah, but related in terms of this kind of uh, kind of collapsible memory right. of what we do, what yeah. what marks our our lives with these historic events. And so I guess if we're digressing, vam- vampires would be a pretty good topic good to come digression. on now. <laughs> so where does vampires come from? I I know you have a class for that title. It's about as much as I know. Actually, probably. Next to foreign languages, you know, how, teaching foreign languages, I probably published on vampires more than any of the other sub, even more than youth culture. I think I published okay. more on vampires. Um, so that one is is truly a, a again serendipity and a sidebar, which again, I'm just going to keep. That's my <laughs> recurring theme: trust serendipity when things yeah. happen. I don't believe in coincidence. I do believe in things just happening. Uh, uh, so I had been interested in vampires all through my childhood, but it was no more than I, I think any kid growing up during a period that they were very present in pop culture. Um, one of the the program to watch running, you know, coming home from school, public school in Texas, it was the right time. Late late 60s, I want to say, maybe mid to late 60s, um, was a, a show called Dark Shadows mm-hmm. that was a advertised as a gothic horror soap opera. <laughs> so it came on later than the normal soap operas did. It came on at 3.30 in the afternoon, at least in South Texas. So my sister and I would always come home to watch Barnabas Collins and Dark Shadows. So I, I was interested in those. My dad was very interested in the, the Hammer films of the 60s, the, these British remakes of the classic horror films, Dracula, Frankenstein, Werewolf, Those and so forth. Those are and very, very cheaply done, they're cheesy. But the first one's in color, right? That was kind of cool about them. So I, I kind of cut my teeth, no pun intended, on those films. But then that was kind of in the background. I really didn't have any other real association. I'm in the State Department. Uh, after I finished doing my dissertation, I actually was a bit burned out. I did my diss very, um, in a very tight timeline. Uh, and I was exhausted and didn't want to look for a job. I didn't want to take an academic job. I needed to to breathe a bit. And so a colleague of mine told me about some work uh, in the State Department. And I 
applied, took the two. I, I tested out in Serbo-Croatian. We didn't have, wasn't Bosnia then, so it was just Serbo-Croatian or Croato-Serbian, if you were on that side of things, uh, and Russian, and placed um, placed into both of those desks. So I worked with the uh, diplomatic corps going out to post in Soviet Union and going out in Yugoslavia. Um, and in one of in between uh, training periods, they they the State Department would post me to uh, what was the group called then? It's changed name since then. I think it was called USI, uh, the U.S. Information Agency yeah. is what it was called then. It's changed names now. I worked for them in the summers uh, in what were becoming the transition. East European states. Now, my job is if I can now talk about this openly back in the day, it was very, it was subversive. Uh, I think it's kind of sweet now. Um, I was in Hungary, <laughs> Poland, Romania. I didn't do Czech lands. I think that might have been it. And my job was to retrain teachers of Russian in those countries to become teachers of English. Wow. Anticipating the collapse of their governments and an attempt to bring them over literally to, yeah. you know, at least to be able to read the press in the English speaking world. And so that was my job. That's it. Now it's a long winded way to get to my favorite of the post was Hungary. And I spent three summers, uh, 80, uh, 80, no, 88, nine and 90 in Hungary, retraining teachers of Russian to teach English. So that included 88, my 30th birthday. So I'm there for my 30th birthday, which is also St. Stephen's Day, August 20th in, in Hungary. It's a national holiday. It's everyone eats all day and gets drunk. And uh, my friends there, who my, my teachers that I was te re reconverting over to English, uh, said, it's your birthday. We're going we got a road trip. We got to go somewhere. We got to go somewhere. Let's let's drive across the border. Thinking, I probably shouldn't. I'm, you know, I'm, I, my, my visa's good. I could, but I probably shouldn't. Yeah, why not? Um, so we're driving. He said, let's drive across. Let's drive to Transylvania. <laughs> it's really pretty. It's a nice drive from where we were. We weren't, we weren't in Budapest. We were in the city called Page. And it was a longish drive. It was a long drive, but we drive across. And by the time we're getting across, it's, let's go, let's go to, to, to Brasov. We're going to go to Dracula's castle. And for me, this really was, what do you, you mean for real? And I thought they meant Bronze Castle, the 19th century kind of recreation. No, 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 they meant the old ruins. And we drove there and parked our little tiny Trabant um, at the bottom. There were no, now you can drive buses up. They say it's a tourist spot now, but back then, uh, donkeys. You got off, your, out of your car, mm -hmm. got on a donkey and up the side of the of the mountain. Wow. <laughs> and by the time we got there, it was getting quite dark. And I did not know this before, but donkeys, when it gets dark, go to sleep. <laughs> and you cannot persuade them to go back down the mountain. So when the, the donkeys are all asleep and I'm thinking, you know, we need to get back to back to work and said, oh, no, no, everything's going to be closed tomorrow for the holiday anyway. We're going to spend the night here. <laughs> <laughs> and we did. Uh, it's, I, gentlemen, I don't know if you know this, but if you're on the top of a fairly high mountain, not it's a mountain, mountain, but a very, very high hill with a castle ruins on it, there is no electricity on it at that time, nothing up there. When it gets dark, it's black, mm -hmm. as in it's on the one hand you look up and the stars are incredibly beautiful. It was gorgeous, just stunningly beautiful. I was quite sober by then, so I remember <laughs> seeing the stars very clearly. But it's also incredibly frightening because you can't see your hand in front of your face. Yeah, uh, and the 
mystery of place really starts to creep in as it's about two in the morning, it's still pitch dark, your friends are snoring next to you and you're thinking, oh, please let that be them <laughs> that I hear next to me. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, uh, that's, that, that did it. I remember having kind of an epiphany sometime thinking, you know, this is a story that you could get students interested in our region. Uh, the vampire story and how it spread from uh, southern Asia, from India basically, via the Roma population, bringing it to the, to the Balkans and from the Balkans it going out to Europe and to Russia. There's a story that I could get them interested in and wow. that literally was the beginning of it. Huh. I got hired here in 1990 at UT and you know, pitched this to my chair who told me uh, that Michael Katz was the chair of Slavic back then and he said, Let's wait till you get tenure, and then then we'll talk about it. <laughs> so I didn't teach it until 1997. Uh, sorry, uh, yeah, 97. 97 was the first fall. Fall of 97 was the first time I offered the vampire class wow. here, and it's wow. been now every other fall since then. Yeah. And so you yeah. so you've all that as a through line, um, just an interregional studies. Right. Have, what has been sort of like? the bleed off sort of academic interest thing. Cause I think of Frankenstein, I know more about that. I know that yeah. Mary Shelley wrote it because I think Mount St. Helena erupted that year and What's it was just kind of gray for like a year. And she just like became miserable. And I guess Frankenstein was birthed out of that. that Do you look at sort of like Bram Stoker and like sort of Dracula of in general and of what course. was making, yeah. you know, this such a gripping topic to people? Of course. I mean, I think the, the again, one one of the things in, in my starting at the beginning back in, in 88, thinking about how this could turn into something to bring students, a bridge course to bring students into gateway, to bring students into Slavic studies was, well, why is it that we all know a, a story, a vampire story of some kind? or another. Mm. And it's because it's not simply a story, it's a myth. It actually has an entire mythos built around it. Stoker's critical in getting that mythos to the Anglophone world. It, we wouldn't, we, I shouldn't say we, the Europe and later then the Americas wouldn't have the story uh, in, in that version that he told. And Stoker tells a good part of the original Vlad Sepesh Dracula story mm -hmm. from Romania. Um, bits and pieces of it. it's not the full obviously he's embellished a lot to make it a novel um, but he really does take that basis of the story we know this from his own journals we know this from his research at the british library we there, we have his marginalia uh, on the story of vlad dracula where he underlines the name and that clearly becomes the name of his own hero wow. in the story yeah um so no that that through line is an incredibly important one of kind of east meets west or further east meets mm -hmm. this west in trying to make connections that I think are crucial to get uh, all American undergrads, but especially I think, you know, Texan undergrads who are a little bit more insular sometimes in a, in a big state like ours, um, uh, as they would be in Alaska or in, say, in the west in general, to really start to broaden out a bit and think what we have here in terms of our stories and uh, myths and legends probably weren't created in a vacuum. They probably did have some origin somewhere else. And I always think that those are nice connections to make. Yeah, yeah. And I know virtually nothing about this, and you already got me interested in this whole thing. It's particularly the stuff about September it coming September uh, 2019. Come on and join yeah. us. <laughs> Vampires is being offered again. <laughs> Do you have a favorite vampire movie? I was always a Romero guy growing up. I saw Dawn of the Dead, and I was like seven, and I was just obsessed with it's zombies, terrific. but it's terrific, vampires. Yeah. So my favorite one still, and it sounds a bit um, 
a bit academic-y, <laughs> yet it still is the original Nosferatu. It's, it's horrifying. It's, it's horrifying. It's very effective. There is something yeah. very effective about silence. Mm-hmm. I, I always think the silent films can can um, really draw students or draw anyone, draw people into their into what it is that that, that frightens us. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I make the tie always in my sci-fi class. So I think one of the reasons that science fiction took a real turn in um, 68 with Kubrick's version of 2001 A Space Odyssey, he's the first one to make space a scientific fact that you can't hear anything in space, that it's right. silent. And mm-hmm. all of these sci-fi movies that had explosions Ooh, and, and all, yeah. right, the, the yeah. theremins and whizzy sounds <laughs> and all going on in the background, he just eliminates and it's just silence. Mm-hmm. So the two things he uses, classical music on one side or just silence, gives us this new insight. Well, that's exactly a borrowing I think he took from the if the effectiveness of silent film right. was that you could get real terror going. Mm-hmm. Alien uses it then later. Right. Tarkovsky uses it later. Mm-hmm. This absolute silence when you people open their mouths and nothing comes out. You want to scream, but you can't hear anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I remember Nosferatu, it has a much slower frame rate than modern movies. Yes. So when you see him rising out of sarcophagus, it's very like stiff. It looks very unnatural. And there's something much more scarier about that than if it was actually like, Absolutely. you know, a sleekly done shot. No, it's, there, there is something very reassuring and uh, at the same time uncannily Mm-hmm. off-putting, frightening about right. those old films because you know there's no CGI, right? There mm-hmm. were no computers to yeah. make these things happen, so it's all either stop action, pulleys right. and levers. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, it's to me one of the best scary movies, yeah. That's a great answer. Did you watch any of these films in the, as part of the class? As part of course, of, the course? of okay, course, of yeah. course, absolutely. Nosferatu is largely because it's the first real film based on the Dracula novel, based on... Um, the original story of Dracula, uh-huh. the, the historical Dracula. So the, the line there is legit. This isn't me just wanting to put some sensationalism. So, so is this Nasratu? Is this a Romanian film? A, is it from no, the it's region? a German it's film. A German. It's from the period of German expressionism. That's part of again one of the cells for me is that the, this uh, your comment about the through line is that what is it that links culturally the vampire phenomenon globally. Why is it a, f- a story that everyone seems to want to tell? Now, the, the course I teach tends to focus on the Western world, but the story is equally potent and, in fact, older in uh, throughout Asia. Uh-huh. The Chinese vampire stories go back at least 2,500, if not 3,000 years. Wow. Japanese stories about 3,000 years as well. Korean vampires, there are all these incredible. We're getting a t- taste of them here and there. Some of the vamp- uh, Japanese vampire stories are coming mm-hmm. in in films like The Grudge and uh, The Ring and so forth. Right. And the, uh, these female. Well, there's the little characters. girl through line of Japan horror movies. You got like, it. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. And I was, there was actually an anime I watched when I was a kid called Alucard, which is just Dracula backwards, it's, but it's terrific. It's, it's yeah. terrific. It is. I don't particularly. I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm out of my league. And when we're talking about vampires, I'm like, wow. I'm way behind in this whole area. We'll catch you up. Come on. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're really we'll enticing you me. I, I might have to make some room. My, I'm a, my schedule. I'm a big uh, from Dust Till Dawn guy. If I was going to think more That's recent. That's got some. Movies. Again, yeah. I, I like to use bits and pieces of films that are not directly part of this canon of the, sure. of the Russian product. Because they have the, this bit or that bit of the Russian story in mm-hmm. them, or modification of them, you know what makes a good vampire film is how much you can keep the myth going, and yet build on to it. Right. I think it's one of the reasons I don't like the Twilight films or mm-hmm. stories is 
the vampire in it is nearly incidental. I mean, mm -hmm. he's an accidental vampire, basically. Sure. There's right. nothing interesting about him other than he is one. Right. Um, the story's about a you know high school romance. That's that's really the story. And mm -hmm. you take it or leave it, but it's not a good vampire story. Um, other ones like say. Um, 30 Days of Night. Oh, yeah. A bit more easy. There's mm -hmm. a vampire story. Well, so you have the Alaskan element, too. Got like, this. it actually makes sense. Makes sense. It ties it to Russia. It, mm -hmm. uh, it's it got all the uh, historical bits to it of the uh, the necessity to be to have part of your native land with you, the necessity of darkness, the necessity to feed, and my favorite part—it's one of the of the contemporary vampire films. It's the only one that really emphasizes the old Slavic idea that vampires traveled in packs. Mm -hmm. Right, they were part of the werewolf population, right? Mm -hmm. And so you've got—they're not this solitary, elegant creature that dresses well and seduces women. No, they're pack animals that attack anything that moves to feed. Mm -hmm. Um, I love that part of the story. That sounds awful, but I do love <laughs> no, that part of the story. <laughs> there's a recent movie, it was with Ethan Hawke and Willem yeah. Dafoe, yeah. where it was vampires actually control society. And there's these humans trying to pretend that they are vampires. Day Daybreakers? Daybreakers. Daybreakers, yes. Yeah, I think yes. that was based on a graphic novel It is as well, a graphic too. novel. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't graphic entirely novel. effective as a movie, it but it's a cool concept. It should have been a better film yes. than it was. I yeah. agree. I agree. Well, so we always end by asking our guests uh, a recent movie or book recommendation. You can give a vampire recommendation if you'd like. Um, oh well, uh, I'm, I, I'm, this is now that how, how recent is it still? Of, of uh, and I'm going to I'm going to botch the name here of all things. Um, uh, what we do in the dark mm -hmm. is one of the best plays I've seen on the vampire story mm -hmm. ever, without being totally. Just, just silly and and uh, a spoof that loses itself in its own humor. It actually is a smart comedy. Mm -hmm. They really had to do their homework to get all six of those, seven of those characters, the backstory to be, you know, this is the Nosferatu character, this is the Dracula character, and so on and so forth, to get them to play out the roles uh, fully as a, as a parody, as a as a, a farce. Um, it's probably my favorite of the ones in the last, say, what, what is that, five years, that I was, guess? Yeah, by 2012, I think. Yeah, probably. They, they started oh, an FX series about it, too, yes, I think. Yes, yes. I've only seen it. They have a second series coming yeah. on this fall. I'm looking yeah. forward to it. We're werewolves, not swearwolves. That's we my favorite line from the movie. <laughs> cool. Thank you very much. Do you have anything I, I should say, for the record, Tom, you never told me that you were such an aficionado and expert in this whole area, but I'm, I'm very impressed. I would say I'm more of a zombie expert, actually. Oh. Vampires are a little more incidental than that. I actually wrote uh, it wasn't a thesis, but I wrote a paper talking about how Dawn of the Dead zombies sort of reflected like 1970s nuclear fear. And then you see 28 days later and it's all like empty cities. It's all big landscapes. And it's 9-11. Yes. It's a much more modern yes. anxieties. I didn't get a good grade on it though. So I don't <laughs> Sorry <wanna> about that. <laughs> I wasn't the most. Hey, so say, take the class and, and, and submit it as a rewrite. We'll, okay, we'll, we'll great. Some, some pointers on Great. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's pleasure. my pleasure. This is a great time I had. Thank you. Thank you. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.